what he sees there is that there is now a growing inability to think about the future or to dream beyond what we already know. There's no innovation. There's no vision. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And today we're going to explain to you why Cameron and I seem so out of touch with things sometime. Uh, the reason that's important is because I think those of you who have been listening to this and observing the world around us see that there is a tension in our descriptions of like how bad things actually are or aren't. And we're always like trying to walk that line of precisely and correctly saying, yeah, this is a problem, be concerned about this, or this isn't as bad as you would think. And I think the direction we want to go here, our hope is, is that some of this will clarify for you the presuppositions that we're operating with that are important, not just for us, but also for you as you live out your Christian faith or wrestle with religious ideas with those around you. And so um, I think we're probably going to come out on the other end of this. We'll see. Think Things are way worse than you think they are, and things are way better than you think they are. Um, and if you want to see how we hold that intention, mm -hmm. we'll let Cameron start on the darker end of it, and then we'll try to work our way in the other direction. So, Cameron, you've been reading Mark Fisher. He's a voice people should uh, at least pay attention to his way of thinking because he's articulated, I think, what so many people feel. Uh, introduce us and uh, take it away. Yeah, so Mark Fisher was a cultural theorist, had a PhD, so he was an academic, but he's best known for informal writings. He started blogging under the title K-Punk for a while, and that was kind of his project to get away from the university, really, and have a little bit more freedom and not feel like he was part of that whole, you know, just basically grist for the mill. But I've been reading one of his books, and he's going to use a phrase called hauntology. That, that phrase comes from Jacques Derrida. Uh-oh, some of you are nervous here. He's not actually the biggest Derrida fan, by the way. But part of what Derrida is getting at with that phrase and part of what Mark is, is getting at with that phrase is that in our moment, you don't really have a clear sense of the past anymore because everything just feels present all the time. But because of that, there's this odd feeling of stasis and paralysis. That sounds abstract. So think about pop culture. Think about a show like Stranger Things. It's wildly popular. A lot of people like it. This current season is, look, this is, I'm the guy who's writing a book on horror, but I would say this current season's pretty brutal. I was, even I was a little bit surprised. So anyway, Stranger, Stranger Things is just a pastiche of 80s tropes. It's just a grab bag of all sorts of films, everything from a nightmare on Elm Street to Scanners to, you know, borrowing from Stephen King stories, Firestarter. But for Mark Fisher, there's something very depressing about that. Because what he sees there is that there is now a growing inability to think about the future or to dream beyond what we already know. There's no innovation. There's no vision. And so what comes through in, in his writings, and it's, it's worth bringing in this fact, he talks a lot about how he feels this crushing sense of depression and emptiness because he just feels so trapped in the moment. There just doesn't, there, there seems to be no real possibilities on the horizon. We're just 
stuck here. Also, you can think about music, by the way, music that tries to reproduce retro sounds or even our obsession with analog equipment and old technology. Many people are buying VCRs and there's this odd kind of nostalgia trip. For Fisher, he sees this as a kind of despair. And actually, I don't think he's totally wrong about that at all, Mm -mm. by the way. But what's what's haunting about reading that reading his his work is that fisher ended up taking his life not long after that book came out it was very sad and so there is there's a a very practical sadness that hangs over these writings but i think he is capturing a mood that more and more people are feeling nathan i think yesterday i was relaying something to you about how hopeless a lot of people sound and I was, I was, and you said increasingly, Cameron, I don't think that's really a generational thing anymore. You're hearing more and more. That's just the kind of common sentiment. And it's also worth pointing out, by the way, and I think Nathan would back this up, that temperament-wise and sensibility-wise, I am hardwired like a very pessimistic, pretty negative, fairly cynical person. So the fact that I continually, it, it I just find a real irony in the fact that I am constantly telling people, yeah, I mean, there, it's, yeah, there's a lot of darkness that you see. Of course, that's nothing new. And I don't think things are quite as bad as, as you think they are. It's just funny for me to be in that position. But I can also feel the frustration from other people when I say that. Because, again, the common, I think, sentiment right now out in and outside the church is that the world is in a very bad place and things are going from bad to worse. I always think about that, that, what is it, that meme with the dog sitting in the, at the table yeah. with, a, with a cup of coffee and everything's on fire and this is fine. I think <laughs> yeah. a lot of, I think that captures the mood for a lot of people. So anyway, that's where, so Mark Fisher kind of got me, th- that, that feeling of, of being stuck, trapped, really did resonate quite heavily with me. Okay, I want to ask you about that because, so here you have somebody who who writes about this. You said it's crushing him, and then he takes his life. Like there's a uh, a, a sad rationality to that. Like it, it makes sense, but it's the reason I said it's a cultural mood is because think about the questions that people ask us, or even people who are fearing to doubt their faith because they recognize if they come to believe that it isn't true that they see some pretty bleak implications for that. You almost have like a modern Nietzschean slip into the chaos of like recognizing that once you remove mm-hmm. certain things from the way that you view the world, the wheels really do come off. And so is it mm-hmm. is it possible that, you know, we've overused the phrase now, probably cut flower culture. You know, when you cut the flower, it looks like it stays alive for a while, but there's nothing sustaining it. Are the flowers starting to wilt in the metaphysical constructs that we have? And the stories that we tell ourselves where we're saying there's nothing to this anymore. And fine, I'll just play video games till I die. I don't know. Like, what's the, is, is this, so it's not mm-hmm. new because we can look at these old philosophers who saw the same thing. Um, and, and I don't think Ecclesiastes plays here. Like, the everything is meaningless vibe because he's using that as a counterexample to, um, the duty of man. So, so he's, he's flirting with the idea, but he doesn't, but he does end up believing there's a God. And so he comes out of it. Nietzsche wrestles with it 
but is sure there isn't a God and sees despair and dread as the logical outworking of it. So is, is this the logical fruit that's just maturing now? Is that, or is it all just like total COVID did this to us? No, I think this has been a long time coming. And I do think, so here's where I will sound genuinely negative for a little while. So I do think we have arrived at the wilting stage of the cut flower. I think this was really well framed actually by David Bentley Hart in an essay several years ago. And the essay is called Christ or Nothing. And essentially that is his thesis. What's happened in the advent of the modern world is that Christianity, Christ, is so iconoclastic. All of the other gods and myths, that rich tapestry, is no longer a viable option. I mean, it might be for somebody, but you can never, you would you would be self-consciously on some kind of a nostalgia kick. Obviously, some people flirt with pagan traditions, and you do see a, somewhat of a resurgence there. But largely speaking, when it comes to our, our most influential sectors, our elites, that those that whole vision died out, and now we are confronted with either Christ or nothing. Now, he may be wrong or he may be right. I happen to think he's probably right here. So in other words, it's either Christianity or it's nihilism. I mean, mm -hmm. that is a very stark either or, but I think what Mark Fisher is doing very well is he's giving you a detailed picture of how you're not going to find what you're looking for here in your cultural moment. Part of what, what's interesting about it is that Fisher is, in a more traditional sense, this is going to sound funny, a modernist. He mm -hmm. believes in the ideals of modernism, not in the sense of a totalitarian, let's take over everything and let's enforce everything, but in the sense of, no, we keep forging ahead to the next vision. We keep improving. We, we do new things. And so when everything around you is just echoing with this sort of superficial, you know, picture of the past, or it's everything is a reconstruction of the past, there aren't new movements, there aren't new ideas and music, the arts seem kind of dried up. Here's where Ecclesiastes comes in for me when, it, when I'm thinking about Mark Fisher. It's not so much the vanity of vanities, it's more that God has set eternity in the hearts of, of men, and then the there is nothing new under the sun. Yeah. And well, part of what, so, yeah, a fisher would think that there, no, there is, there are new things under the sun, and we need to go find them, and now we've lost that impulse, we've lost that urge, we've lost that vision, it's all gone. And we would simply say, simply but profoundly say, you are looking in the wrong place. Right, but, so yeah, all that to it, say, that's let's... why it's, it's a, it's a heart-rending experience. Yeah, yeah, well, let's take that whole mood and then just throw in a pandemic and inflation and voila. Um, yes. the, the, so you're talking about like the arts drying up and, and a couple of these other categories. Um, in some ways, it does seem like we've stalled on some of our exploration and adventure. And even in technology, I think there's a bit of a, like my wife and I have both recently purchased like new phones or gotten new apps that were, Mm -hmm. definitely worse than the previous models that we had. Like even the technology isn't really, you're like, ah, you know, this isn't like a big step forward. Um, in fact, it's maybe 
not mm-hmm. as good as it was. And then maybe even if there is this thing that is good, we can't get it because of supply chain stuff. Or I like so I think there's a like this underlining um foot dragging kind of like in every category of things are not accelerating at the rate that we've always told ourselves that they can to provide happiness for us. So, um, and you even see that in tech stocks or like Uber Lyft startup companies, like these tech companies that aren't doing as well, or you find out that they aren't fiscally solvent. Um, our ideas are, are being shown like reality is biting us here in a certain way. And you talked about, there, there's a sense, you, like the Christ or nothing thing, we can talk about evangelical deconstructionism, but don't you think that this is the byproduct of deconstructionism in like every other category of life as well? I mean, it's not only Christians who are deconstructing the way they see the world and live in it. Everybody is. And so at a certain point, at the end of the, as the cut flowers start to wilt a little bit, people are saying, why are we still going through these routines and these postures and telling ourselves these stories that, you know, probably most people who celebrate Christmas don't believe in the virgin birth right but it's a fun cultural thing and mm-hmm. um but you know what it's just losing some of its like if it doesn't have an actual ontologically religious referent to it why are we doing it and so there's this to just take that category and multiply it by everything and you can see how you generate a cultural heaviness of what's the point of this and we don't have anything to look forward to other than what has already been the end yeah, and I mean, and add to that the fact that, you know, new new stuff, innovation, never can deliver fully on its promises. It's never going to be the savior that people expect it to be. But I think the threshold of what people want has just been lowered so much. People want now, they they're, those part of what troubles Fisher is the absence of a real serious ambition. Because most people Ooh, yeah. are just content to be, yeah, to be passively entertained. But a serious vision, real ambition, especially, so if let's take the examples that he's using. If you're talking about artistic achievement, for instance, serious ambition requires tremendous self-sacrifice. And often other people pay for what the artist, for the artist's ambition. Let's just be honest, right? If you're, t- I mean, whether we're talking about Picasso or Faulkner you can look at a trail of bodies in these people's lives who paid dearly for these men's commitment to their art. But that sense of ambition, whereas now most people are pretty content as long as they're just amused enough and they just have a little bit of entertainment. And so there isn't that sense of grand reaching. And also, but wait, brings this in. Time out, time out, time out. It's worth, time out. Is that real contentment or is that just being anesthetized? Yes. Now his, so his, yes, it's being anesthetized, but he's, he's going to say, now he's, now he is a committed Marxist. So he's going to say that's basically just the machinery of capitalism that, that has, that has, you know, hypnotized you and is, is keeping you running on your little hamster wheel. But part of what he's getting at though is, is true in the sense that if you want to do something interesting and challenging you, you need time, you need space, and you need freedom. And increasingly now, if we're talking about the artistic world, there is, in if it's commercial art, there's less and less freedom now because it's just, it's all about marketing. It really is all about, I mean, look at the way 
Hollywood operates, we're getting a little off topic here, but most of most of Hollywood's films are all either remakes or part of some franchise that is practically guaranteed to rake in the big bucks. Now, there are many different factors there, but profitability alone should not be the driving force behind artistic creation. It can be part of the driving force. I mean, commercial aspects are fine, but if that's the sole driving force behind everything that we consume, you're going to get some really shallow and superficial stuff that just kowtows to the audience. And that, for him, is very sad. Yep. So are we losing the human element of reality? And... And and by saying that I mean kind of like yeah. the the things that have historically made us tick have now been mechanized and solved technologically to the degree that are what it means to really be creative, what it means to have true adventure. Um so all right, let me I'm gonna yeah, ditch that. Well, thought. I mean even think of Yeah. Or or if you want to run with it, go for it. No, but I, I think well, I got to run with it a little bit. I mean, and then then we need to turn to some of the states of affairs that are really alarming a lot of us in the church as well, and and see about how bad things are there as well. But we're what we're I think talking about here is just a predominant kind of cultural mood of hopelessness. I think claustrophobia in some ways, feeling stuck, like you can't, like there's there's no way out, there's nowhere to go, and there's nothing new. There's no lifeline. There, there isn't any possibility on the horizon. But even think about the fact when I was a little boy, the thought of a streaming service, anything like that would have been, I would have thought, a total dream come true. I mean, I have since a very early age been obsessed with music. Just, I love it. The history of music, the behind the scenes of how a great album was made. For me, a wonderful evening is sitting down and reading about Coltrane's A Love Supreme and what went into that record or reading about how Brian Wilson created Pet Sounds, all of that. And so the, the notion that I would have instant access to all of that all at once would have thought, oh my gosh, in my wildest dreams, I could never have hoped for more. Well, here it is. Yeah. And, and I don't but know. He, it's a mixed so he, bag for me. Yeah. So here it is. And now it's a reason not to get out of bed. So it's it's kind yeah. Of <laughs> well, there's no pursuit. Yeah, there's no pursuit. There's no, I don't have to. There's it's totally passive. There's no doing of anything. I'm not sorting through you know crates of records. Dis there's no real sense of discovery. The algorithms are are playing a part in it too. But also, you just feel stifled by the sheer abundance. You don't even know when you when you you can have anything you want. Well, I don't know. Oh, gosh. Well, what do I choose? You know, there there are those. So that's <laughs> you I see need that somebody to tell you what the top ten best songs yeah. are. Mm-hmm. Well, well, increasingly, okay. we're conditioned for that. I told you, I wrote, wrote a little blog post about that once, yeah, about how being in a bookstore and not having an algorithm to sort out what I sh my lists and thought, oh, my goodness, what do I do with this terrible okay. freedom? Anyway. So I see a couple dangers here or, or, or connections I want to run by you before you take us in the church direction. So there's this, like, okay, we'll do nothing with our lives. That's one category. There's the other one, and so Rabbi Jonathan Sachs points this out, that you know, people, individuals or a culture will get to a place where they say, um, this is bad. So they'll identify something that is wrong or is unpleasant, mm -hmm. and then they have two options. They can say, what did we do wrong? Or they can say, who did this to us? Um, his point there is that historically Jews have been the who did this to us, and it's led to a lot of mm -hmm. horror in the world. But mm -hmm. that same cycle repeats itself. When you look at a culture in change, 
and people say something is wrong and we can either say there's something that we personally did and take responsibility for this and fix it or somebody else did it to us and that's the the somebody else did this to us is what generates this isn't just anti-semitism now this is like mainstream media's <laughs> basic whipping boy so so yeah. there are those things that are happening but the third option there is to deny the category that what we're experiencing is wrong and just say this is just how it is now there's another option in there too but i think if we're going with secular theories here so to speak either we did something wrong somebody did something to us and we got to fix that or mm-hmm. no nah, this is just the miserable way that life is and then we run that to his logical conclusion mm-hmm. so um the 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 basic question that we're wrestling with is what are we supposed to be doing with ourselves right yeah yes and i think as christians let's let's shift this now to away from mark fisher and and talk just as christians here when we find ourselves in this moment i think there are here let's let's i would like to lay out some of our assumptions right now just as as christian men these are not radical assumptions at all at all they may sound radical but they're simply just biblical modes of thinking biblical assumptions but i'm going to say first of all we need to recognize that we are here because god has put us here we are not here on accident we're not in the wrong time we're not in the wrong place the time that we have is not our time it is a gift to us and we have the central commands of our lord to love him with all that we are and to love our neighbor as ourself and we do that in our specific time place spheres of influence and community there is no ideal place we should have been i think it's important to stress that because in our moment uniquely and this this was part of what fisher was getting at it's possible to feel that you are a person out of time more mm-hmm. more than than i think in the past because so much of the past is available to you now in recordings and all of the surveillance that we have i mean you you can you have the illusion of constantly touching the past and a lot of people pine for that i think a lot of the poem miniver chivi did you ever read that one nathan nope educated me Miner- yeah well real quick wait miniver chivi is a fun poem it's worth looking up you can you can read it for free online basically about a guy who's in a bar just drinking his life away very depressed that he was not born in medieval times because he wants to be a knight and that's his and he just he's just sure that he's waylaid in the modern world and he doesn't like it it's drab it's empty he wants to be a knight of the round table his heart is filled with romantic notions and I think there's a little bit more of Miniver Chivi in all of us these days. We tend to be hopeless romantics about the past. But it's very important to recognize the Lord has you here for this moment. And so I do get, Nathan and I both get a lot of questions about how bad things are right now. And I have noticed a, a, a real uptick in questions about the end of the world myself and by the way the the discourse as they say on the end of the world and the apocalypse is not limited to the, to the church right now everybody is talking about it everybody's joking about it that's a kind of ubiquitous thing but when people ask me that part of the response always has to be along the lines of what nathan was saying well okay maybe even if we are let's say hurtling toward the end of his history as we know it so to speak 
what are we to do right now? And by the way, if you're a Christian, the end is really the beginning, and it's not a bad thing at all. But I think what what is interesting to me is I often detect a kind of a note of either cynicism or hopelessness in that question. And part of the the trick is to say, well, we you're you're here for a reason. This is the time in which you are meant to live, and the world since the garden has been fallen and corrupt. And and here's here's I'm finding that the biblical sentiment that is least believed often these days is that there is nothing new under the sun. Yeah. But there really is nothing new under the sun. True. The smartphone hadn't been introduced yet, and maybe you didn't have drag queen story hour in, you know, Solomon's courts. But perversion and innovation that that changed the way people thought that was a total paradigm shift all of that was happening all of that has has been happening time immemorial so i think that's some needed perspective to kind of order our thoughts a little bit as we think about our particular moment and some of its unique challenges so cameron as you're talking about kind of the um let me let me put it this way so i was reading through um I was flipping through something, one of the worrying passages that Jesus is talking about, and um, I saw a little note that I'd made, and when I was in college, and then a few years after, so for six years, um, so like age, say, 19 to 25, I went to a church um, that the class I was in had a retired uh, seminary professor who just thoroughly thrashed me every week for like six years. It was great. I learned so much during that time, but one of the <laughs> things, he was teaching on one of the, um, and and probably was the foundation of my Q&A stuff. Uh, I can get into stories of like how he tried to always publicly nail me on stuff. And it was we, we just, it was just great. Um, anyway, so one of the things I was looking in on one of these teachings on worry, his name was Herman, by the way. Mm -hmm. And he said he probably could have gotten through life without being named Herman, but that was the card he was dealt. So anyway, um, so Herman said, if you are worrying, if you read the teachings of Jesus and you are worrying, it's because you have an unrealistic appraisal of reality. So if you're reading the teachings of Jesus mm. and you're worrying, it's because you have an unrealistic appraisal of reality. And what he means by that is he's pointing back to exactly what Cameron was saying, that a certain degree, you ha if God is who he says he is, if Jesus said and does and did and do and will what he says he does and did and will, then that reality fundamentally alters the way in which you see everything. So it's Christ or nothing, not just in terms of like hope and what gets you out of bed, but pretty much all of reality. So it, it does come back to like, what is the most real thing? What is actually true? And so that's the, I mean, that's the platform that Cameron and I are playing from here. And so it's the answer to that question of like, how can we look at our world and be like, this is completely ridiculous. Um, and on the other hand, be like, I'm looking forward to the future. So it's, yeah, I mean, that's it. And you knew where this is going, it's, but it's just that simple thing of like, at a certain point, we have to recognize that our faith is not uh, a nice accessory. It is actually foundational to the way in which we live and move and have our being. So yeah, I think that's how Christians are going to have to live in this. We can say, yes, that's bad. And no, it doesn't make me depressed. And yes, that's bad. Doesn't surprise me. Yes, that's a problem. 
I'm here to fix it. Uh, so it's it's like this weird, like, yeah, we can absolutely recognize chaos, but it doesn't mean that we, A, need to perpetuate mm-hmm. it <laughs> or generate it, um, but we live in it and call for stability. So, yeah, I don't know. I I, I just think we're, as the, as the cut flower dies, the flowers that have real roots are going to be the ones that still have their color. And so this is a call f- for Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, we can speak to our age group here of saying, hey, you're going to be a different shade. You're going to have some vibrancy and bear fruit here if you're actually rooted in something that's real. So I don't know what, what else is to say there other than let's yeah. let's recognize and point at, yeah, this is the way the world is. There's darkness and brokenness and bleakness. And then there's the historical perspective there where we come in at and say, yeah, compared to what? I mean, this is kind of like the mm-hmm. story of humanity if you're not cherry-picking your examples. Mm-hmm. Um and the reason, the fact that it's broken is the reason that Christ came. So, yeah, I don't know. It all makes, uh, it makes sense to me. Yeah. Let me say a few words here about some practical ways to augment this, this perspective. So where Nathan and I would be saying things are worse than you think is dip into a history book. Whatever nostalgia you have in your head, get ready to have it dismantled if you're going to look at a reliable historian. Now, and that's not deconstructing in the sense of, you know, pulling it all apart and leaving nothing remains. It all comes, it's total and complete dissolution, contingency all the way down, as I've heard some people say. Remember, there's a Blaise Pascal quote that I think is really important. The motions of grace, the hardness of the heart, external circumstances. All three of those dimensions are always operative. This is our Father's world, and in Christ, all things hold together. That is always true. Given the penchants of wickedness that you see sometimes, the eruptions of wickedness, wickedness, I should say, throughout history, it really is pretty miraculous that there aren't way, way, way more atrocities than we do see. Now, that Mm -hmm. is not at all to downplay. I'm going to come back to the word downplay in a second. That is not at all to downplay the wickedness, the iniquity that we see throughout history. That is to put into perspective the fact that a serial killer is still an exception to the rule. A tyrant is still, you know, completely unhinged, unleashed, is still an exception to the rule. And that's a picture of the restraining power and cooperation that's built into the human spirit as well, okay? So I think that's an important perspective. But just look at look at history, and you're going to see vile wickedness in whatever period you have. If you look at our nation's history, by the way, you can, whether you, can, you look at the slaughter, slaughter of Native Americans, whether you look at chattel slavery, whether you look at the religious abuse that took place among the pilgrims, Now, that's not to discredit everybody down the line. Again, it's to put into perspective the crooked timber of humanity. We need to to recognize that. So things are much worse in that sense. This this is, there was never some golden era from which we've now emerged, and now here we are in this degraded state. Oh, no. I mean, unless you're talking about the Garden of Eden, there isn't a golden era. But also, to recognize, though, that to put into perspective that, yes, you live in a fallen world, but what this really does is it forces on you the question, do you believe Jesus? Dallas Willard phrased this as, is Jesus nuts? 
And he had in mind those very <laughs> passages about worry and anxiety from Jesus. And when he really presses this, here's what he said. The most, for me right now at this stage of my life, this is the most challenging thing Dallas Willard said. It might change as I get older, but he said, this world is a perfectly safe place for you and I. And that goes to the heart of what we've been saying. You're here for a reason. God has placed you here. It is, it is by his will that you're here. And he loves you. And he doesn't just love you. He likes you, too. That's, a, that's an absolutely immense thought for me. So, but you only, you're only going to believe that if you believe that, first of all, Jesus is real, his resurrection is real, and his power is real, and that death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. This is something we come back to over and over again, but the truth is most of us, our default setting is thoroughly atheistic, and we think death is the absolute end of the line, total annihilation, worst thing that can happen to us. That's not true. So that's not, and that's not our resting assumption. So just a little bit to to bring those pieces in here so that I think to try to make sense of the fact that this is not, I don't think that what we are doing is downplaying what's going on. I know the accusation sometimes is don't downplay the seriousness of what's happening right now. My question back would be, okay, well, how are how is saying that Jesus and his claims are real and that death is not the worst thing that can happen to us and that the Lord has placed you here for a reason and that you you should be walking filled with his peace and hope. How is that downplaying the realness of the evil that surrounds us? What more should we be doing? If that is not enough, if we're supposed to move in a more extreme direction, if we're supposed to move in a more fearful direction, I think we're going off course. So, let you know, as you're saying that, I was reminded of two conversations I had with my dad at two different phases of life, um, but they point to, I think you'll see how this makes a connection. So one of these, um, I was in seminary and I felt like I was doing a lot of studying and not a lot of other stuff. And I was like multiple states away from home. And I called my dad and I said, Hey, you know, he's asking how things are going. And I said, well, you know, a lot of book knowledge here, but I'm not really sure that I'm actually doing anything practical with my life. And he said, oh, he said, don't worry about it. He said, uh, Jesus' disciples took three years to study with Jesus and still had plenty of time to get their heads chopped off for preaching the gospel. It's like, oh, thanks, Dad. You know, uh, with, with the idea of like, well, yeah, when you get down to, to like really doing the work of Christ, there's conflict. That, like, so I was like, oh, yeah, my dad thinks I'm in seminary so that I can die better someday. Um, that's, that's a comforting one for you, but it's, but it's real. And then another time, I guess I was lamenting some sort of chaotic or brokenness of the some system or something and i don't remember even remember what it was but i remember my dad saying yeah of course and then he said roll up your sleeves son join the fray um and it's almost like oh hey i'm an older <laughs> christian i've been mixed up in this like come on in like it's chaotic but you were built for this um and so i think mm -hmm. that's my challenge I'm like, for, for in some way, that little phrase summarizes so much of what I think I want to communicate to you as a listener mm -hmm. is like, roll up your son's sleeves or roll up your sleeves, son, join the fray. Like, yes, the world is crazy. And yes, you were made for it. And if you're paranoid or paralyzed by this, you have an unrealistic appraisal of reality because you're not seeing everything that's true. And so, so much of what Cameron's been calling us to is like, yeah, we can see crazy around us. 
but that isn't all that there is. Evil is maturing in the world, but so is good. And God delights in revealing himself and has gone to prepare a place. And, you know, I mean, like the the rest of the story really, really matters. And so living in a time in which technologically so much of our attention is sucked into what's wrong, it really requires intentional spiritual formation individually and collectively and deep participation in relationships in a congregation in a church that can help us see the full picture and be reminded of the whole story, not just the scary chapter in the middle. And so mm. I think that's my my heart for people and what I want to live into is, yes, it's bad. Yes, it's okay. <laughs> and it's And it's not... It's not a paradox. It's not a parable. It's it's reality and what you were meant for. And then the questions that you hear people asking, the answers that Jesus gave start to make sense for the really deep human longings and interactions. So that's, I, I can't quite articulate it all in the right way, but that is the posture that Cameron and I operate out of. And that means that sometimes it'll seem like we're downplaying things but really, we're just saying add all of the extra resources into that situation. And sometimes it'll see like, seem like we're overly optimistic, but it's because we're saying, hey, and there's all this other stuff to it. And so I appreciate those of you who, who wrestle through and bear with us as we walk that line of like, how do we balance realism and hope? Um, because to be totally realistic from a secular perspective is to be pessimistic. But <laughs> there's the God factor in there. And that's the the light of eternity that we live in now. So anyway, this is our our attempt at packaging that and and wrestling with it. And um, perhaps or hopefully you feel that in your own life as well. Yeah, I think. And just as a, a parting thought here, this this came to me when we were kind of in the midst of of COVID. This was twenty twenty. I think one of the most menacing aspects of COVID initially was that there was no end in sight. And that was what was, I think, so psychologically painful for a lot of for a lot of people. You could not see when this thing would end or how it would end. And I think I can say COVID is not over right now. There does seem to be a bit of waning, but what has been unleashed by COVID, some of the problems that have been unleashed, whether they're psychological, economical, political, or that have just been probably brought to light by COVID, I think many people similarly don't see an end in sight. I think COVID shattered for many people, interestingly enough, shattered some illusions of stability that were just that, they were illusions, but shattered them pretty definitively. And I think many, many people have not recovered from that. And so what I would like to say there is that as Christians, we don't know how all of some all of these these earthly endeavors pan out, so to speak. But we do know the end of the story. We do know that we are awaiting our king. And so because of that, we have a sense of great expectations and un, you know, basically undefeatable hope no matter what happens. It's helpful always as a little thought experiment back to history. Imagine if you're a person living in Poland in 1942, for instance. I think you would be, I would be very sympathetic to the thought 
right, that the world was coming to an end at that point. I think it would that would make all the sense in the world for many people to think, is this it? Is this how it all ends? So, and yet the world continued turning and we moved past those events as people do slowly, incrementally, carefully. Now we do know that one day this world will come to an end, but that's just a picture of how limited our understanding of when that will be actually is. So it's bearing that in mind. We are patiently waiting, but sometimes we're not so patient. Sometimes we do follow the biblical precedent and say, Oh, come, Lord Jesus, right? Because the end of the world, in Christian terms, is a good thing because it's a new beginning, right? We're awaiting a new heavens and a new earth. We're waiting for Christ to return to make all things new. So if that is your reigning conviction, then you can you can walk through any time and say, things are pretty bad. This looks grim, but it's okay. Everything will be all right. And it's not downplaying. It's the height of realism. Well, because the, the trick, though, is that you'll need to suffer for everything to be all right. You're not denying yes, suffering there, just right. to clarify. Yeah. Not at all. And part of part of basic Christian trust, and I do say basic, and I feel that I feel this too as a comfortable Westerner, basic Christian trust involves testing and suffering. Right? To test the metal of your faith, faith, your your level of conviction, and your love, and also the fact that you're going through a world that's fallen and broken, where you are mortal, and so is everybody else. So things break and you lose people. And sicknesses happen, relationships fall apart. All of that is part of life under the sun. So it's knowing that. I think being realistic helps with those expectations. It's funny because I think a lot of modern despair and a lot of modern hopelessness is not born of realism. It's actually, it's somebody who feels a betrayed, it's a betrayed kind of idealism, actually, where the, the kind of assumption is, how could this happen to me? This shouldn't have happened to me. I've been deeply wronged. It was supposed to be better for me. I'm deeply sympathetic to that thought. But once again, that's a thought that is predicated on a misinterpretation of the world that we live in. So if we have the right perspective, we'll know that suffering is an ingredient there, but that it doesn't have the final say. So I know some of this may have sounded counterintuitive, some of it may have sounded challenging or even bordering on offensive. We hope that this has been helpful to you. We hope that this has been a realistic and robust word of encouragement. We hope it also kind of helps to translate us and translate our odd mood. You know, Nathan and I may seem out of sync with what's going on sometimes, and this is our stab at an explanation. But thanks. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. And by the way, if you want to see what we are up to, read some of our, our writings. Make sure you follow us on the socials. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. And you can, of course, visit our website, www.toltogether.com. And if you want to support us, you like what we do, you find value in it, you can do so on the website as well by donating to us. Thank you so much to all of you who are already supporting us. 
Your prayers and support mean so much to us and are tremendously encouraging, and we are deeply grateful. So thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.